Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I am happy to be joined by New Orleans-based educator, poet, and author Cassie Prine, who is here to talk about the two books she released this year, Bayou St. John, A Brief History, and a poetry collection entitled Lena. How's it going today, Cassie? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure to have you here. You are a actual veteran of WRBH, having uh, read here twice before, I believe. That's right. That's right. I had a wonderful time. Well, glad. Glad to get you in to talk about a few different things. Um, you've been really busy this year. Uh, two whole books are out now. Um, I want to ask you, how does it feel to have these two things out in the world? It feels wonderful. It has been a really busy time, a really busy um, two years leading up to this moment when they're both in the world and they're both such different projects. I think they have um, ways in which they are in communication with each other in a little, in some ways, but um, they're so different. So it's been really uh, exciting and um, surreal to kind of have them both out at the same time. It wasn't actually planned that way, but sometimes one doesn't have control over the timing. But um, it's been a really humbling and um, fulfilling experience so far. Well, great. Um, to kind of dive into to Bayou St. John first, uh, what got you interested in this history and to, to write a book about it? Well, I've always had an interest in history of place and space, particularly New Orleans. It's part of what drew me to... Um, to the city and to staying here. I've also always had a fascination with bodies of water, um, but I, I was completely new to formal research. Um, and so I had a friend who kind of suggested that I try taking on a project uh, like this, even though it was a complete departure in many ways from the poetry I was writing and that I'd studied formally. But um, once he suggested, you know, you should write about the bayou. Uh, I don't think anyone else has really done it in quite this way. And I just knew in that moment that this was my particular adventure. And it was very challenging. I had to learn a lot in the moment. Um, but I had him as a great mentor and a really welcoming city that loves its own history and that um, is really willing to um, have conversations about it and lots of amazing experts in town. So um, that's how I got started. And then I just kind of followed it as it unfolded, um, which involved, yes, lots of learning on the spot. I can imagine. Uh, I'm really interested in kind of the research component of that. Uh, how did you, uh, not having done this before, kind of dive into the research and what were some of the uh, mistakes you made at first and, and some of the things that you found that really helped you? Yeah. So I was, um, I was given some advice to start broad. So to read everything that I could find on the subject of the bayou. Um, obviously, I couldn't read everything, but to get a sense of um, the scope and some of the stories that uh, needed to be told or to get a sense of just the bare outline of what has occurred along the waterway and what are the major events and the key players. And um, once I did that component of the process, which is about four months, it could have easily gone on, um, I started to move on to each chapter, which moved chronologically. And so that gave me some structure um, going forward. And I had deadlines for each of those chapters with my editor. Um, and so I would just dive into the specifics of, in, in my case, it was almost a whole century per chapter. So it was um, still pretty broad in terms of the time that had elapsed. But I would just go and follow the leads um, within that time period from what I'd originally found. Um, and you'd asked what were some of the things I learned along the way or yeah, what. Yeah. Um, 
Let's see. I mean, organization, all of the information I came across, I'd gotten some advice about how to sort of create a system for organizing my notes and where I'd been and what sources I'd used. You don't want to come across something in your notes that you want to use and not remember where you got it. (laughs) So um, I had some advice on that, which was really useful, but it's also really individualized. So there were times when I had to um, kind of shift my note taking or shift the way that I was organizing and processing and culling and kind of reorganizing the information. So some of it was a kind of like, okay, I don't think this system's working so well right now. I need to try this in this moment. So it required um, really listening to those who know what they're doing and have done this before so that you don't uh, sort of reinvent the wheel, but then also um, adapting to my own kind of needs and my own unique way of uh, processing what I was coming across. No, I see that. And you also reached out to, you know, individuals to talk about their experience with the Bayou as well as, you know, archives and collections. What, what was that experience like? That was fun. It was very challenging for me. I, um, I tend to be a bit shy when it comes to just making that initial contact. Um, I don't want to seem invasive or, you know, it's just a little uncomfortable at first for some of us. But um, again, residents of the neighborhood were so welcoming, really interested in their own history uh, or the history of their neighborhood and the waterway. Um, And also many of them had a lot of uh, personal expertise, either from experience growing up there or things they knew about the history research they'd done as well. Um, It was so it was fun. I I approached it from uh, multiple angles. Some of it was online, um, you know, through local newspapers asking for folks uh, to reach out to me if they wanted to tell me stories or show me photographs. Um, Some of it was social media. Honestly, I found that to be, um, it was somewhat useful, Mm -hmm. but I think I probably uh, made more contact by actually setting foot in the neighborhood. Some, some, um, at one point I handed out postcards, as many as I could manage to handwrite and I gave, I put them in people's mailboxes along Moss Street, and that mm-hmm. had an incredible return. I was really excited. People seemed to be really intrigued by the project precisely because it was personalized. Yeah. So um, attending events in the neighborhood, neighborhood association meetings, word of mouth, one person connecting to me to somebody else, to somebody else, to somebody else, those were the strategies that worked the best. And to some extent, the blogging that I was doing and my website and social media um, was helpful too. Okay. No, that, that's really interesting. I love that kind of organic feel to it, that this is kind of rising motion for it. Yes. Um, to kind of dive into like the, the content of the book, um, you uh, the, the bayou itself has changed quite a bit uh, from our modern times to its almost prehistorical uh, standpoint. Uh, and I want to talk about that. But before we get into that, I was wondering if you could read a small segment from the book detailing what this area of land was like before uh, colonization happened in the New World. Yes, I'd love to. If you could travel back to a time before the arrival of the French explorers and stand on the banks of Bayou St. John, near the spot, say, where present-day Esplanade Avenue meets present-day Moss Street, you would find yourself in a lush prehistoric world. All around and above you, massive live oaks, pecan, acacia, wild cherry, and sweet gum trees would loom. If you climbed a tree and stuck your head up through the canopy, you would see where, to the west and east of you, these mammoth trees extended along the spine of the ridge, along the center of which the slack-water remnants of the former Metairie Sauvage distributary would still be flowing. On either side of the ridge, 
You could watch the land slope almost imperceptibly down, its gradient marked by a change in flora. Cane breaks and thickets of palmetto blanketing the slope, dissolving into stands of cypress and swamp tupelo trees standing knee-deep in still water. If you were to look to the north of your treetop perch, you would be able to follow the tributary-fed curves of Bayou St. John, studded with islands and sandbars, chock full of fish and turtles and alligators, as it meandered toward the blue, midden-lined Lake Pontchartrain, positively teeming with marine life. Swarming above your head, immense clouds of migratory birds, perhaps ducks or wild geese, would intermittently block out the sun. Down on the forest floor, rabbits and bears and deer would be hiding in the underbrush. Behind you, along a small ridge, a path worn smooth by the dragging of canoes, strewn on either side with satchels and other baggage, would extend in a roughly southeasterly direction toward the risen banks of the Mississippi. And if your eyes were really keen, you might even be able to spot the white sails of a distant French ship as it wandered among the barrier islands of the Gulf Coast, searching for the Mississippi's mouth. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you. Um, fun to read. Uh, good. I, I love that passage so much because as you brought up uh, earlier in the interview about this idea of being fascinated with sense of place and how you draw the contours there of this place that none of us will ever know because it's so, so, so far away from that now and the urban center that we are now, it's hard to even get even little glimpses of what it was then. Uh, how is it writing that and trying to to picture that for yourself? Um, those moments in the book where at the end of each chapter, I take um, a look at what it would physically have felt like to stand in that same location um, after, you know, each period of time had elapsed. Those are really important for me because they're how I connect to history myself. I, it's one thing to know what in intellectually took place. It's important to know those things. But I think if I can't actually physically sort of imagine it or put myself there and like you said, kind of um, see the world as it once was in this very spot. To me, um, history doesn't like fully, I can't fully comprehend it or process it. So it's really important for me as someone who's um, engaging with history. And I hoped it would be illuminating and fun for the reader. It's one thing to know, okay, um, there were lots of, you know, these types of trees and these types of animals. And, um, you know, it was all very um, undeveloped. But unless you can feel that and picture that, at least for me, it doesn't have as much resonance. So I was really interested, um, and I remain interested in my poetry and in, in this project, um, in that true kind of physical experience, the body and space, and how that space has been altered and kind of manifests the history that's um, unfolded on top of it or um, in a, uh, in terms of human development. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I've been watching a lot of movies myself lately and thinking about uh, some of the best narratives out there are enhanced or made better because of a tactile features of the environment, even if, if it's just a scene for a hot second. But if it's utterly detailed or there's something interesting about it, it really brings you in in a way uh, that you wouldn't have otherwise. And I, and I love that about the writing here, that that tactile nature of it and like really honing in. You know, a lot of people will just write it off as though that's just setting. It doesn't really matter, but it really right. does. It can really enhance. Right. Film knows this. Film obviously can do this so well. And yeah, I think it's so important for any kind of writing to have, um, yeah, the tactile kind of sensory experience brought in. Because that's one of the ways that we um, just make, 
you know, make sense of what's around us. No, it's true. Um, I asked you this at the the reading when I when I saw you last, but who do you think is the most consequential figure in the history of the Bayou? Yes, and that's a great question, and I hadn't quite thought of it in those terms. Um, and I believe I answered you, and I think it's I think I would say it's still true that um, obviously Bienville and Iberville as the brothers that kind of founded the city in its present day location and that utilized the Bayou um, with um, the help of Native American guides, they couldn't have done it otherwise, um, were obviously really important players in terms of how the whole uh, the whole story progressed. However, I would say that there was also a much more recent figure, Walter Parker, who many residents of the Bayou probably recognize his name or the Bayou neighborhood. Um, he lived in a very historic home on Moss Street. He was a businessman, and um, he really took leadership over transforming the bayou in the 1920s and 30s from a kind of post-commercial um, kind of ragtag scene. Uh, there were multiple reasons why that was uh, what was happening on the bayou at that moment. But he decided, no, we need to clarify what this waterway is used for um, and what it's to be used for and how it's going to best serve us as the city and as the residents of the area. And we're going to... Um, make it look like it fits the part, right? He was really, really um, crucial in deciding what the beautification of the bayou would look like and in um, securing funding uh, from the federal government during the WPA era. So he really spearheaded that effort. And I have no doubt that some another resident might have stepped up to um, take that role because the residents in the neighborhood have always been um, all up and down the bayou, not just the, the southernmost... Um, you know, most historic neighborhood, all of them have cared about the bayou and what it's used for and um, have really taken on the responsibility. But he in particular was um, just so dogged. I, I got to read all these letters that he was sending to multiple um, officials, uh, you know, on a local and national level, yeah. trying to move this process forward. And um he was really kind of impressive in that way. And you would say he's probably the main reason we have the bayou as it appears today and its yes. uses for today? Yes. Thanks for making that connection. Yeah. The the cement um, that lines the bayou, the way the banks are built up, the boat landings, um, the bridges that are no longer uh, drawbridges but are fixed and in place, all of that is um, in response to this beautification process that took place in the 30s. And remains it's much of what we see today is attributable to that movement. Yeah, and the Cabrini Bridge uh, that everyone knows who, who walks along the bayou in the Mid-City area, um, that wasn't originally there and they had to float it to where it was, right? Yes, I was so excited to find that. Um, I found it in part because the Times-Picayune Historic Database, um, well, the Historic Archive became digitized, so now it's a digital database that you can access with a library card through the New Orleans Public Library website wherever you are. Um, I learned because it had been digitized and because it was much easier to search for terms. I mean, I still read through, I probably skimmed through um, close to 10,000 articles with Bayou St. John mentioned. So it was not easy, but it was all, I mean, it wouldn't have been possible um, without that search term, right? But I stumbled upon multiple articles that described um, having to replace the Esplanade Bridge in 1908 because of increase or because of automobile traffic at all down Esplanade to, park, to City Park. Um, 
And so they needed a bigger bridge, and it turns out the Cabrini Bridge or the Magnolia Bridge was that bridge that was being replaced, and it had been there for decades. I still don't know. I never was able to find the exact date that that bridge was um, built and, and put in place. But they did indeed just put it on a barge. They needed to replace the footbridge that was in the general vicinity of where the bridge, the Magnolia Bridge is now. So they thought, okay, well, we have this working bridge. Let's just float it on down. We'll put it up. And um, so I was really excited to find that this bridge that everyone knows so well, that's truly iconic, that is about to get um, a big makeover, uh, used to be this all-important Esplanade Bridge. I really loved that fun fact. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I get that. Um, you know, I reading through the book, there's so many interesting like tidbits and anecdotes that you have in there, including you know, you no know, celebrations in the 1840s and, and 50s uh, for, of Mardi Gras and people dressing up and fighting bears on the banks. Are <laughs> yes. uh, the, the the 1920s the the people in houseboats, you know, living along there, uh, which which are great to kind of like focus on. I'm wondering, what was your favorite anecdote? our story that you didn't get to include in the book? Oh, I think it would be hard to choose one because I actually ended up taking a lot of those really colorful and rich anecdotes. And I ended up creating a whole separate kind of blog series that went alongside the book precisely because I had to keep this narrative um, fairly succinct just because of the publisher's um, constraints. And, you know, it's, you have to keep the story moving. So I wanted it to be a fairly, um, fast-moving narrative that did encompass these um, with detail, but encompassed the kind of broad um, occurrences and what was evolving. So there were a lot of anecdotes that I found in um, in these, specifically these Times-Picayune um, articles or from talking to folks in the neighborhood that I thought, um, I think this would be perfect as its own kind of mini-story. And so I think of those blog post is a kind of the the B-sides, if you will, the kind of bonus material. And it would be really hard to pick one. There were so many (laughs) oddities. Like, I actually don't remember what year this was. I think the early 20th century, a kid on on the Dumain Bridge, he found a box full of um, what he thought he were human hands, but they turned out to be alligator hands. And there was no way of knowing where this box came from or why these severed animal um, alligator claws were in the box. And this poor child was terrified. He was only, I think, like six or seven and completely mistook it for, you know, a murder victim or something. And so he ran to the police. And those are the types of things that I thought, you know, this deserves its own kind of special place. Yeah. Uh, interesting. I love <laughs> yeah. that. I'm going to have to read Just some more Just one example. Yeah. Um, uh, this is the complicated question concerning the bayou, but but who owns the bayou these days? Oh my gosh, it is complicated. Um, I write about in the book how there were, well, it's complicated because water law is fairly complicated. So as a navigable waterway, meaning the bayou was used for navigation when Louisiana became um, a state in the Union. Uh, it So that was in 1812. Because it was navigable then, it gained this all-important status as a navigable waterway, meaning um, the state has, like, ultimate ownership. But there are all these, that is being contested um, all the time. I talked to Mark Davis, who is a water law expert at Tulane, and um, it's not black and white as I imagined it was. There's um, There are lots of ways in which that status is constantly being um, contested or, you know, what does that mean and what does it mean in the modern day? So we have the state's... Um, we have the state's role, there's the city's role, and it's also just about the banks and the actual waters and the 
face of the bayou and the locks at either end, so the sewage and water boards involved. There are all these entities and this this layered jurisdiction that has been true of the waterway since the very beginning. So there were commercial charters to operate it, um, and there were uh, lawsuits throughout history. There, I think there's one even kind of pending right now having to do with um, I'm not even sure quite what. I wasn't privy yeah. <laughs> to the information, but having to do something with, um, I think, use and control of the banks. And so these things are still um, constantly unfolding. And I heard from many residents who had different ideas yeah. about who was in charge and for what. So um, I don't have, that was a kind of um, slippery topic for me that I tried my best to kind of untangle for the reader in a way that was successful. Um and to suggest that it's ongoing. Yeah, no, interesting. I know that that's very hard. Thank you for answering that. <laughs> um, to kind of pivot a little bit, I want to talk about your, your poetry because you are a poet and that was your main focus before taking on this researcher role. Yes. Um, how would you describe your your work to someone or, or your poetry in general? Uh, what, what are your focuses and what are you interested in? Yeah, so um, in general, I have been interested in writing into history and writing often... Um, into different characters or voices. I haven't uh, normally or typically, I, I wasn't super concerned with um, my own autobiography or speaking from personal experience, but one wouldn't necessarily know that um, if they were to read my first published collection because actually there was a series of poems that turned into a book that um, are very personal to me and autobiographical. Um, so it was kind of an emotional process to realize that that story needed to be told. Yeah. So in general, um, you know, what I'm working on now after these two books is um, is personal in the sense that they come from me, but they're much more interested in um, exploring from different angles, um, history of place and space and all the things that I'm curious about that kind of show up in my work on Bayou St. John. Um, but this first book, Lena, is indeed um, quite personal and tells a very specific story about a relationship. Yeah, would you mind uh, just giving our, our listeners a little um, synopsis of what the, the book is about? Sure. Um, it's about um, my first love. So a woman that I was uh, in a relationship with in college and our very um, intense and um, problematic relationship that was mostly due to the fact that she was in the closet. So um, it was a very difficult time and um, really informative, a kind of coming of age story. And then to add to, um, you know, to add to that experience, she got diagnosed with cancer really young and, and died a few years ago at 26. So um, it was not a subject that I was actually comfortable writing about. And I felt maybe I didn't even have the right to write about it. Um, our relationship was pretty fraught. But, um, but she was also this incredibly important person to me for reasons that are specific, I think, to um, the situation we were in um, as as um, members of a same-sex relationship. So it felt like the story had, I mean, a lot of personal meaning for me, but it felt like it also had a kind of, it had a story to tell that was beyond just our specific story. So the book is non-chronological, but it explores this relationship and the kind of speaker's processing of her grief and what it was like to to have a relationship that was um, kind of erased or had to be erased um, from everyone around it and 
how does that relate to to what ended up happening ultimately and um, our relationship ultimately? Yeah, no, I, I think that that's very interesting and, mm-hmm. and, and really um, kind of incredible that you, that you have this out there um, and we're able to do that on, on kind of a writing and editing perspective, like line by line. What were kind of your goals for the book as far as your, your poetic methods in it? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I'm very interested in the music in, inherent in poetry. I think that's what draws me to it. Um, so some of the poems have um, some rhyming. Some of the poems are sort of subtly playing with sound. Um, but I'm always concerned with the rhythm and the kind of texture of the language on a, in an, um, on a sound level. Um, and then I also really wanted to bring the landscape alive with this book. The landscape of when this, where this relationship took place to me was critical. One, because I'm keyed into landscape anyway. Yeah. But two, because... Um, because we had to hide, we had to exist in space in a really interesting way. So a lot of our relationship unfolded um, in weird places that it wouldn't otherwise have unfolded, like driving, um, you know, we were in a rural, we were in upstate New York, so driving along back roads or in the woods or um, in the fire tower or place, these spaces that otherwise we might not have occupied in the same way were kind of brought to life because... Um, there was a fear of being seen. Um, it was really very serious for her. So it was therefore serious for me. And I think, so the landscape to me is like a third character in this book. And yeah. so I really wanted to bring that alive with the language and with the images that the language um, conveys. Yeah, I, I can see that. It's so interesting that the, it's like the poetics of Einstein almost, you know, bringing this place or space and time into, you know, collaboration right there. We talked a little bit about that before. Yes. Um, Tell me a little bit about what did it feel like having this this out as a book now? Like, was it a cathartic experience for you? Uh, how, how did it kind of change your perception of, of events and also your work? Yeah, writing the poems was certainly cathartic. And um, writing and actually revising them was extremely cathartic because I had, had some really close readers who were helping me. And often I would start writing about a kind of conscious memory. I think when we have relationships with people, we tend to have a sort of greatest hits of our memories with that person. Like that time we did this thing, it's sort of, you have these um, touchstones. So I would often start to write into those and realize with the help of other readers that actually maybe this other memory needed to come out or this other idea or this other image had to be brought to the surface. And doing that was actually um, extremely therapeutic in the way that I got to sort of relive some of it or be in communication, active dialogue with what had happened. So the fact that this person no longer is here and no longer can share these memories with me, that we are the only two that had them to begin with, that was devastating for me. So having the poems um, give me a way back in and kind of to re-explore was extremely cathartic. Um, Releasing it into the world was terrifying um, because it was so vulnerable and I felt so vulnerable in the poems. And it wasn't, like I said, kind of my conscious intention. Um, But also, um, I knew it needed to be in the world. So there was a kind of uh, comfort in that. Uh, The poem sort of told me that, I think. So I had to trust them. And um, that was a really fulfilling experience. And I've had wonderful uh, conversations with readers, a lot of young readers, a lot of young readers who identify as... um, gay or who are exploring that aspect of their identity, especially in the South, um, I was shocked by how important it was for some of these readers to have read these poems. So I 
that was extremely um, rewarding for me and humbling for me. And I think if that had been the only conver- those those conversations had been the only ones I had in relation to the book being in the world, it would have been enough. Yeah, no, I understand that. Interesting. Mm. Um, I w- I'd love if you could share a poem from that now. Sure. Um, this poem's called What Cold Can Do, and it's toward the end of the book. What Cold Can Do She's still out there somewhere. She must be a child, asleep belly down on the rug beside the Christmas tree, the fireplace a mouth of light, laughing out shadows, only a hundred or so miles from me, where I lie, too, in my old living room in Maine, my eyes turned toward the fire. Lena, get up. Put your coat on. Get your mittens. Go out the side door and follow along the stone wall that arcs across the field and keep going. I'll meet you at daybreak in a grove of grandfather pines, thick with snow, shellacked with ice, and we'll kneel and punch our knuckles, numb as frozen pawns, down to where the snow is almost warm. It's so deep and weightless. Shivering, tipping mittenfuls between each other's teeth, we'll eat our fill. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you. Um, as we're wrapping up the interview, I, I, I would love to hear, you mentioned earlier in this interview, about how these two books communicate with one another. Uh, could you, could you um, talk about that a little bit? Yes, I think it's not totally obvious, um, probably for folks who would read them. Um, or maybe it is, but just maybe through that connection of place and landscape, because it really is um, so integral to how I make sense of the world. I imagine that's coming through or was my intention to. Obviously, the history book deals with that in a very um, direct and linear way, um, and Lena in, in much less direct and linear ways. But I think love of landscape and kind of um, orientation and space and place are true of both of them. I also tried um, in the Bayou book to really um, bring the language to life with some of what I knew was my strength going in as opposed to something I would have to learn along the way. I knew, okay, well, I do know how to write um, poetically. Um, so I think those those moments, the vignettes at the end of each chapter, that's how I think of them with, um, you know, someone standing at Moss and Esplanade and taking in what's around them. That to me was my moment to bring in some of the, the poetry that I, um, you know, that I hold dear and it's a strength of mine. So I tried to bring that, the musicality or the sort of um, the visceral elements of language I tried to bring into the book without kind of weeding it down, you know, without... Um, keeping that story from, from progressing in a, uh, in a, um, you know, elegant and brief kind of way. So that was, those are the ways I think of them as being knitted together. Um, and I was working on them concurrently. So there are ways probably that even below the surface that I don't realize that they're in communication. Unconscious bleeding. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Great. Um, well, the final question for you, um, what are you reading right now and what do you have planned for 2018? Any, any projects upcoming? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm reading a lot for, um, I I am just starting working again on some poems or a kind of creative project that might have prose and poetry that has to do, um, again, with space and place. But I'd like to write about the Mississippi River. I'd like to write about um, where I grew up in rural Maine, specifically the house I grew up in. 
Um, and I might even go kind of crazy and uh, read some ghost stories to kind of get in the mood. I'm curious about the concept of haunting or the way that we think of history as being still alive. Um, so, you know, I'm doing lots of fun research like that. And um, I would love to start reading some primary documents and go to Maine and do some archival research on that front. Um, I'm also reading um, a book called The Ethics of Memory that's this philosophical text um, that talks about collective memory. I'm curious about memory. So I'm kind of casting a wide net and I'm always reading um, novels as well. I just read a Jeanette Winterson novel. I'm I'm interested in um, writers who identify as queer too. I'm interested in what they do um, not just with that as an, as an identity, but as a kind of literary strategy. So these are the things I'm exploring. They sound kind of broad because that, that's the place I'm in, I think. Yeah, the, the wide Starting hat. fresh, yeah. yes. I, I like it. Yes. I like it. Um, what was the best? This is going to air in uh, early 2018, I believe. So uh, what was the best novel that you read in 2017? Oh, my gosh. Um, uh, Jasmine Ward's Sing Unburied Sing, I would say. I, I believe I read Salvage the Bones the year before, so I don't think I can say that one. She is <laughs> she is deserving of all the prizes she's won, I think, which is saying a lot. And um, Sing Unburied Sing was really uh, an exquisite book. It was hard to read in many ways. Uh, there's a lot of darkness, and you kind of worry for the characters, but Jasmine Ward is just an author that you can, like, you can just completely trust her when you're reading, that she's going to do everything she needs to do as a novelist to kind of bring that story um, where it needs to go. So I just, she's one of my favorite writers in part because she is so visceral in the way that she describes um, the landscape and the characters within it and their stories with each other. So that was by far my favorite novel of the year. All right. You'll, you'll hear a few arguments from me on that point. Oh, really? Oh my gosh. I would love to talk about it. (laughs) I'm not a fiction. I'm a great, I'm a big reader of fiction, but I wouldn't claim to be an an expert in that particular genre. (laughs) That's all right. (laughs) Well, Cassie, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It was really wonderful to chat with you.